0: If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146 Highland Park, Howick, Auckland, or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association, Respectful, Beneficial, Empowering. Hello and welcome to today's program. It's been quite a journey, but last week we came to the end of Shantideva's A Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life. I hope those of you who stayed with the series of programs the whole way found some benefit, even if practicing everything that Shantideva recommends may be beyond most of us. Still, I think that even if we are not at his level yet, we can gain some very good advice for whatever level of practice we are at. For myself, I always find his teachings on patience, and how to lessen anger very useful. Today we are going to start looking at a short text by the founder of the Golukpa tradition of Tibetan Buddhism, Lama Tsongkhapa. Being a text in the Tibetan Buddhist lineage, it is in the Mahayana tradition. The text is called The Three Principal Aspects of the Path, and you can find many commentaries on it in books and on the internet. Although I have had teachings on the three principal aspects of the path from great masters, like Kensa Satapki and Lama Zop Rinpoche, I don't profess by any means to be an expert, so our programs are going to be a kind of mutual exploration. Just so we don't make mistakes, we'll be quoting from commentaries like those of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, Geshe Sonam Rinchen and Lama Yeshi. First of all, before we continue, let's set our motivation for participating in the program as we usually do. There are many types of motivation, but only some can be called Buddhist. For instance, we could use the program today for background noise, like many workmen use radio music as they work. They don't actually listen much to what is playing, but the sound blares forth maybe so that they don't have to take any notice of their own thoughts. When I was working as a proofreader for a design and print company some years back, The first thing my co-workers did when coming into work in the mornings was turn on the radio. And from then on, music, basically the same selection of songs hour after hour, was the background to all the day's activities. If there was no radio, there was lots of grumpiness. So we could use the program like that to provide some noise to fill space while we go about our daily activities. Needless to say, that's not a Buddhist motivation. Nor is it a Buddhist motivation to gain some profit out of the show. An example might be a student of Buddhism wishing to seem religious or even saintly, ostentatiously turning the program on. Look at me. I'm always listening to the Buddhist program. Aren't I good? Or someone might record the programs onto CD with the intention of selling and making money out of them. These are all worldly motivations, so let's avoid anything like them for taking part in the program. In fact, any motivation concerned only for the happiness or avoidance of discomfort in this life is not Buddhist. The least Buddhist motivation is to create some positive potential for happiness in future lives. But that too is very limited because once the resulting happiness comes to an end, it's just back to the old samsaric dissatisfaction and misery all over again. Still not the best, but a much better motivation is to use the program to become liberated from suffering. With this motivation, we can at least move towards eliminating our dissatisfaction and unhappiness altogether. So, if we really want a profitable result from the program, we should make this our intention. However, the greatest motivation is not only focused on oneself, but all others as well. Of course, When each of us looks closely at our own lives, we see that we're afflicted with very little real happiness and a lot of uncertainty and dissatisfaction. But that's true for everyone. It's not as though I have difficulties but no one else does. That's not the case. Others might look happy, but go and chat with them and you'll soon hear about all their troubles. None of us in the samsaric cycle of existence is free. So wouldn't it be better if participating in the program could help free not only myself, but everyone else as well? Now can you see how the mind opens out when we think like that? Instead of concentrating on just one person as it usually does, it is suddenly concerned with billions. And so the object of the motivation becomes vast, and so does the effect of the motivation itself. Now realizing this, Let's then try to set as vast as possible a motivation for getting together today. That's to become enlightened so we can best benefit all other beings. Of course, the greatest would be to lead them also to enlightenment, but even if that's not possible, to help them in whatever way we can. This is by far the best motivation because it becomes the cause for our enlightenment as a fully omniscient Buddha, a state in which we will have the greatest capacity to assist others whether they're in great torment or not so now let's set such a motivation but if you f- feel it's really beyond you at this stage at least motivate to set yourself free from cyclic existence thank you now in his commentary gishiltsonam rinchen the very fine teacher who over many years influenced countless Western students at the Library of Tibetan Works and Archives in Dharamsala starts off by advising us how to listen to the Buddhist teachings. He uses the traditional metaphor of three pots, one upside down, another with a hole in it, and a third one dirty. He writes, The teachings will help to bring about an inner transformation if we approach them in a constructive way by avoiding the three faults and fostering six attitudes. The Buddha said, Listen well, thoroughly, and remember. Listening well entails giving what is said full attention and not being like a pot which has been turned upside down. To listen thoroughly we must be free from polluting intentions which makes us like a dirty pot. If we do not take care to keep what we hear in mind, we remember nothing and are like a pot with a hole in it. No matter how tasty the delicacies or how fragrant and fine the nectar, nothing can enter the pot which is upside down. The fault does not lie with the food or drink, but with the pot. When you are physically present but distracted and do not listen to the teachings well, the words and their meaning cannot enter your mind and the purpose of attending the teachings will not be accomplished. No matter what drink you put into a pot with a hole, it will leak out. And there be nothing left to enjoy. Even when you listen carefully and give your attention to what is said, if you forget it afterwards, you will not know what to practice, and the true purpose of listening to teachings will not be fulfilled. And then Geshe Sanam Rinchen talks about motivation and compares an unsuitable motivation to a dirty pot. You might relate it to what we said about motivation earlier. He writes, A dirty pot spoils whatever is put into it and makes it unusable. You may listen attentively and remember what you've heard, but it will be of no true benefit to you if you are motivated by any of the poisonous, disturbing emotions or are concerned with only the well-being of this life. Remember we spoke about someone taking part in the program to make money or to gain some reputation or status out of it. Such motivations are driven by what he calls poisonous, disturbing emotions, like greed and wanting profit for this life only. And that's what he's talking about here. He continues, The true purpose of listening to the teachings, remembering them, and familiarizing ourselves with them is to decrease our attachment, hostility, and confusion and make our mind more peaceful and controlled. With a polluted motivation... Our involvement with spiritual teachings may simply serve to increase these poisonous emotions. He goes on, Being like the pot which is upside down prevents you from developing knowledge derived from hearing the teachings. Being like a pot which leaks stops you gaining knowledge derived from thinking about them. And being like the dirty pot is an obstacle to knowledge attained through meditation, which is how to rid yourself of the disturbing emotions. To counteract these faults, Listen to the teachings attentively, try to recall what you have heard repeatedly and remind yourself to arouse the pure intention, such as the wish to be free from cyclic existence or to attain enlightenment for the sake of all living beings. Now the six attitudes he mentioned earlier are in the nature of curing illness. Basically, because we are in a state of continual discomfort, if not outright misery, we are like sick people. So this should be our first attitude, that we're not in the best of health. As Geshe Sanam Rinchen says, Whatever position people have in society, whether high or low, whether they are men or women, lay or ordained, they experience innumerable kinds of physical and mental suffering. When you first meet someone, you may be impressed by their smart clothes, their air of affluence, or their authority and confidence. But once you get to know them, they will tell you about their troubles and sorrows. Our problem, of course, is what Geshe Sonam calls the poisonous, disturbing emotions, which, for brevity's sake, I will refer to from now on as the afflictions, as I have done before. These are attachment, aversion, pride, arrogance, doubt, and so on. Any conceptual event that will result in unease or worse, which is, in terms of our metaphor, sickness. Then, the second attitude is to regard the spiritual teacher, particularly the Buddha himself, as the doctor, because it's through the teacher's advice that we can be cured of our illness. Ordinary persons find it very difficult to control anger, attachment and so on, mainly because they have no techniques to counter these afflictions. Just knowing they are harmful doesn't give us the wherewithal to stop them. Often people have asked me why, when they know the afflictions are so harmful, they find it so hard not to give in to them or to control them. The answer is that we first have to get to know the techniques to deal with them and then give ourselves time to familiarize ourselves and make those techniques effective. For that, we need the spiritual teacher to tell us what to do and how to do it. And that's why the spiritual teacher is likened to a doctor and the teachings to medicine, which is a third attitude to cultivate. Then, if we have a sickness and the doctor has prescribed a medicine but we don't take it, Both the doctor and the medicine are completely useless to us. Even if we take the medicine for a few days, but then forget about it, we can't hope to be cured. But it's not the doctor or medicine's fault that we don't get better. It's purely down to our own negligence. So the fourth attitude is that we have to practice the teachings until we get the result we want. In the same way, a patient has to take medicine until completely and assuredly cured. The fifth attitude is to recognize enlightened beings as authentic guides and as our role models. Geshe Sonam Rinchen quotes the Indian master Dhammakirti, who said that we must recognize that the teachings we practice, whose validity have often been proven, have come down to us from the Buddha, a truly authentic and trustworthy teacher. Realizing this, we should show our great appreciation of the Buddha and our teachers. And then the last attitude is guided by the wish that the teachings remain long in the world. Now if we had cancer and found a medicine to fix it, naturally we'd want the medicine to be available for as long as possible, not only for any re- recurrence of the disease in us, but to help other cancer sufferers as well. Of course, I'm not suggesting that once we have completely practiced the Buddha's teachings, we might still be in danger of falling back into cyclic existence, That's not the case. But even when we we are completely enlightened and forever free of suffering, countless other beings will still need to be liberated. They'll still need the teachings. So the Buddha's teachings should be accessible for as long as they are needed. So those are the six attitudes to overcome the three faults of being like a defective pot. I hope both you and I will keep these faults and attitudes in mind as we go through this text so that we can get the most out of it. Okay, so now let's talk a little about the text itself, the three principal aspects of the path. Geshe Sanam Rinchen claims that it's a summary of all the practices that lead to enlightenment. The three aspects referred to in the title are renunciation, bodhicitta and the understanding of the nature of reality. In 1982, His Holiness the Dalai Lama was supposed to give a teaching in France, but he fell ill, and so he asked Lama Yeshi, one of the very first Tibetan masters to make an impression on Westerners, to teach in his place. The text he asked the Lama to teach was the three principal aspects of the path. Lama Yeshi was the co-founder with his student Lama Zobar in 1975 of the Buddhist organization the, the Foundation for the Preservation of the Mayana Tradition which now has 165 centres all over the world. He had a wonderful way of relating to Westerners, and so I'm going to refer to his teachings, which you can find in the book The Essence of Tibetan Buddhism to explain what is meant by renunciation, bodhicitta and the view of sunyata or emptiness. Starting off with renunciation, what is it, he asks? When Westerners hear the word renunciation, they get scared because they think it means they will have to give up all their pleasures. Just think, no more listening to music, no more drinking alcohol, no more sex. Oh dear. But, Lama she says, that's not quite rena- what renunciation means. The reason we are unhappy is because we have extreme craving for sense objects, samsaric objects, and we grasp at them. We are seeking to solve our problems, but we are not seeking in the right place he says. The right place is our own ego grasping. We have to loosen that tightness. That's all. According to the Buddhist point of view, monks and nuns are supposed to hold renunciation vows. The meaning of monks and nuns renouncing the world is that they have less craving for and grasping at sense objects. But you cannot say that they have already given up samsara because monks and nuns still have stomachs. The thing is, but the English word renounce is linguistically tricky. You can say that monks and nuns renounce their stomachs, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they actually throw their stomachs away. So, I want you to understand that renouncing sensory pleasure doesn't mean throwing nice things away. Even if you do, it doesn't mean you have renounced them. Renunciation is a totally inner experience. Renunciation of samsara doesn't mean you throw samsara away because your body and nose are samsara. How can you throw your nose away? Your mind and body are samsara. Well, at least mine are. So I cannot throw them away. Therefore, renunciation means less craving. It means being more reasonable instead of putting too much psychological pressure on yourself and acting crazy. Lama Yeshe continues... The most important point for us to know then is that we should have less grasping at sense pleasures, because most of the time our grasping at and craving desire for worldly pleasure does not give us satisfaction. And that's the main point. It leads to more dissatisfaction and psychologically crazier reactions. That's the main point. If you have the wisdom and method to handle objects of the five senses perfectly, such that they do not bring negative reactions, it's all right for you to touch them. And as human beings, we should be capable of judging for ourselves how far we can go into the experience of sense pleasure without getting mixed up and confused. We should judge for ourselves. It's completely up to individual experience. It's like French wine. Some people cannot take it at all. Even though they would like to, the cons- the, c- the constitution of their nervous system doesn't allow it. But other people can take a little, Others can take a bit more. Others can take a lot. So I want you to understand why Buddhist scriptures completely forbid monks and nuns from drinking wine. It's not because wine is bad. Grapes are bad. Grapes and vines are beautiful. The color of red wine is fantastic. But because we are ordinary beginners on the path to liberation, we can easily get caught up in negative energy, And then Lama goes on to quote the example of the Indian master who walked into a bar and ordered drink after drink until the bartender got exasperated and asked him when he was going to pay. Oh, I'll pay when the sun sets, said the master. But the sun never set, and the drinker just kept on drinking. These kinds of higher realization, we call them miraculous or esoteric realizations, are beyond the comprehension of ordinary people like us Says, says Lama Yeshe. But this saint was able to control the sun and drank perhaps 30 gallons of wine and he didn't even have to make peepee. Of course, to us this story sounds incredible. But the point Lama Yeshe is making is that once we have gone beyond lusting after the enjoyments of samsaric existence, we can make use of all its so-called pleasures without any danger to ourselves or others. You may have heard of the masters of crazy wisdom, people whose outrageous behavior leaves others wondering whether they are mad or divine. Like Drukpa Kunli, the wandering yogi, who would turn up in a village, stand in the square and say something like, I have come without prejudice to help you all. Now where can I find the best booze and the most beautiful women? Yes, he was known for his drinking and womanizing, but as he said, Outwardly, I live for my pleasure. And inwardly, I do everything in the right moment. Outwardly, I'm a ragged beggar and inwardly, a blissful Buddha. It is only with complete renunciation that we have the possibility of acting like that. And we don't. As Lama Yeshe says, if you check your own life, your own daily experiences, you will see that you're caught up in small pleasures. We Buddhists consider such grasping to be a tremendous hang-up and not of much value. However, The Western way of thinking, I should have the best, the biggest, is similar to our Buddhist attitude that we should have the best, most lasting, perfect pleasure, rather than spending our lives fighting for the pleasure of a glass of wine. Therefore, the grasping attitude and useless actions have to be abandoned and things that make your life meaningful and liberated have to be actualized. Lama Yeshe goes on to say that the opposite of renunciation is the extreme grasping and craving mind that projects an overestimation that has little to do with the reality of things. It's like when we see a physically beautiful person. Suddenly we can't take our eyes off them and the mind starts fantasizing about the wonders of getting together with them. We develop a real fascination. Of course, in a conventional sense, the object of our fantasy may have a certain beauty. In a conventional sense, means that our community is generally in agreement with what we reckon is beautiful. For instance, recently Megan Young of the Philippines won the Miss World Beauty Pageant. Her slim figure, regular smallish features and clean looks match our idea of what is lovely. But compare her to the buxom Venus in Botticelli's Venus and Mars or Raphael's even more fulsome St Catherine of Alexandria with their high foreheads and strong noses and we see a marked difference between our present beauty and that of the Renaissance. I wonder if Marilyn Monroe would have found the same adulation today as she did in the middle of last century. Her figure was that much fuller than so many of the model-slash-actress icons of the present. So beauty is conventional or relative, but that's not how our eyes see it. We think that the person of our attachment is beautiful from their own side as though they have an inherent beauty which our lusting mind overemphasizes. As Lama she puts it, the craving mind projects something that is beyond the relative level, something that has nothing to do with the object but which hypnotizes us. He writes, That mind is hallucinating, deluded and holding the wrong entity. Without intensive observation or introspective wisdom, We cannot discover this. For that reason, Buddhist meditation includes checking. We call checking in this way analytical meditation. It involves logic. It involves philosophy. So Buddhist philosophy and psychology help us to see things better. Therefore, analytical meditation is a scientific way of analyzing our own experience. In another discussion on renunciation, Lama Yeshe talks about how Prince Siddhartha left the life of the court. He says, Before Shakyamuni Buddha renounced the royal life, he had visited the town and seen various manifestations of suffering, old age, sickness and death. He realized that there was no reason to cling to the reputation of being a king or to the pleasures of marriage. He was flexible. He saw that he was okay with these things, but also that he would be just as okay without them. He knew he could live in the jungle and be just as happy and healthy as he was in the palace. Flexibility is the key. You're all right if you get pleasure and you're all right if you do not. In this way, you become very easygoing. If you get a chance to enjoy something, then enjoy it as much as possible, but in a reasonable way, with dignity and a refined or transcendental attitude. Enjoy that pleasure as it is, instead of with delusion, superstition and fantasy. When you discover the as-it-is of things, everything gives you pleasure. That's true. I really believe it. When you touch reality, you find and appreciate beauty everywhere and get pleasure from whatever object you encounter. Now this echoes Thich Nhat Hanh, the great Vietnamese master. Here's a passage he wrote about eating. Look down at the food in a way that allows the food to become real. This food reveals our connection with the earth. Each bite contains the life of the sun and the earth. The extent to which our food reveals itself depends on us. We can see and taste the whole universe in a piece of bread. Contemplating our food for a few seconds before eating and eating in mindfulness can bring us much happiness. Tignad Han has a meditation that he calls a tangerine meditation. One day, he writes, I offered a number of children a basket filled with tangerines. The basket was passed around and each child took one tangerine and put it in his or her palm. We each looked at our tangerine and the children were invited to meditate on its origins. They saw not only their tangerine but also its mother, the tangerine tree. With some guidance, they began to visualize the blossoms in the sunshine and in the rain. They saw pl- petals falling down and tiny green fruit appear. The sunshine and the rain continued and the tiny tangerine grew. Now someone has picked it and the tangerine is here. After seeing this, each child was invited to peel the tangerine slowly, noticing the mist and the fragrance of the tangerine, and then bring it up to his or her mouth and have a mindful bite, in full awareness of the texture and the taste of the fruit and the juice coming out. We ate slowly like that. Each time you look at the tangerine, you can see deeply into it. You can see everything in the universe in one tangerine. When you peel it and smell it, it's wonderful. You can take your time eating a tangerine and be very happy. Is this what Lama Yeshi means when he says that when you touch reality you find and appreciate beauty everywhere and get pleasure from whatever object you encounter. Think of the way we normally eat a tangerine or a piece of chocolate or an ice cream or anything. And now we'll have to leave the discussion there because time is up. Thanks for joining the program today and please dedicate any positive potential we've created to the enlightenment of all beings everywhere. I hope you'll be with us again next week. Goodbye. This show is brought to you by the Buddhist Youth Association every Sunday, bringing Buddhism to the community of the Waikato. We also give away a range of free English or Chinese Buddhism books, MP3 or tapes on Buddhism. If you'd like one, please send a letter with $3 worth of stamps in an envelope to P.O. Box 82146, Highland Park, Howick, Auckland. Or you can phone 092713377. Buddhist Youth Association. Respectful. Beneficial. Empowering.